You guys can finish up those conversations after service. Hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Jared. Um, it's a privilege to get to be up here this morning. Uh, I get to be on staff with Dr. Church. Uh, I do a couple of different things around here. I do some stuff with our college ministry, the Salt Company. I uh, do some stuff on the community side with local missions and also uh, Docs of Men, right? Just like a, a handful of things that I get to partake in here with the church. Super honored to. Um, and we have hopes and goals of uh, man, planning a church, Lord willing, in Milwaukee in the next couple of years. And so, uh, man, you guys can be praying uh, with me and my family uh, for that. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, man, we're going to be continuing in our Mark series. I want to jump right in. Uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, okay? If you have your Bibles, you can meet me there. We're going to be in the back half of that chapter, finishing up verses 30 through 50. <laughs> and in this text this morning, what we're going to get is this glimpse of a real intimate interaction with Jesus and his disciples. So there's a couple movements in this text, but the biggest chunk is in a setting familiar to like one of our equipping classes if you've ever been to one. Like if you've ever been to Intro to Doxa that Nate was talking about this morning or to our Foundations class, like the, the setting that the disciples and Jesus are going to find themselves in this morning will be one similar to that, where Jesus will be a teacher posing in front of them and, and teaching them about something in particular. And the thing that he's going to be teaching them about is this, discipleship. What it means to follow Jesus. And for some of us in the room, like we hear discipleship and it just clicks, right? Like we, we know what discipleship is. We've been in and around the church uh, most of our lives. We are partaking in discipleship. People are leading us. We are leading other people. But there's another cohort in here, right, that kind of hears this word discipleship and it really doesn't mean much of anything. It's just another churchy word, right? Discipleship. But if I can help us, when we think about the term discipleship, becoming a disciple, we can really think of it like this. It's just a natural result of becoming a committed learner. See, the term is churchy, but the, but the concept is not. Right? Being a disciple, we can kind of liken it to being an apprentice. Or maybe an intern, if you ever had that kind of experience where you're wanting to learn a job. And so you get a combination of this classroom type training and this on the job type training. And the result and hope is ultimately becoming like the people who are training you or becoming like the people who are at the top, the best in that profession. Right? This is discipleship. It's not flashy, but it is costly. And this is kind of what I want to unpack for us this morning. So if you made it to Mark 9, uh, I'm going to begin reading right there in verse 30. And here's what it says. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, Jesus and his disciples. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I want to pause right here and unpack this a little bit for us, right? Before they get into this teacher-student setting, they're, they're, they're on the move. They're, they're on their way uh, through Galilee, getting to Capernaum. And he's having this conversation with his disciples along the way. And what he does here is for the second time in this book, he foretells his death, 
He tells the disciples what's going to have to happen to him once they go into Jerusalem. And he's saying that I have to be turned over to authorities. I will be mistreated. I will be hung up on the cross and I will die. As I was studying this text, like I was looking at every account where Jesus foretells his death. And I noticed that he never talked about dying without talking about his rising. See, he never mentioned his suffering without also mentioning his glory. And I find it strange that the disciples' reaction was always to his death, but it was never to his resurrection. See, they always reacted to the bad news, losing sight of the good news. And some of us here know what that's like, don't we? Like, have you ever been in a place where there's like goodness and this promise of upside in the future, but you can't see beyond the immediate circumstance. Like some of us in here, maybe, you know, you had dreams and goals of going to college. And you knew that at the end of your four-year stay at college or your five or six-year, whatever, whatever that looked like for you, right, or was going to be for you, you knew that you'd get your degree and you knew that you would go off to get a job, right? You could visually see and understand there's a reward at the other side of this thing. But then you got to going, right? And like it was the long nights of staying up and studying. It was all the tests. It was the meticulous work. And it was even getting one of those like, like low-paying jobs, right? So you can like make a little tiny dent into your student loans. And you saw what was before you and you lost sight of the end goal. Or maybe for some of you, it's like going to the gym, right? If you're anything like me, like, like this, is, this is me. You know that at the end of, of doing your regimen, like, yeah, you could actually get the physique that you want, right? But it, it, it takes so much. You got to eat right. You got to actually go to the gym. You got to do all this kind of stuff, right? And it's just like, man, I know I want this picture of like what I hope to be, but man, I get lost in the journey of things, Your minds are wild like that. We can rightly hear and we can see the reward that may be coming in due time, but we get so sidetracked and blinded by the journey. This is what happens to the disciples. If we look at verse 31 again, it says this, that Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. But see this, and when he is killed... After three days, he will rise. So the disciples hear the good news about Jesus' resurrection, and they are unmoved. But I got to tell us something about the resurrection in this text. Like, if you're in here and you're just exploring the faith, I'm glad you're here, you're welcome, or maybe you're a new believer, I have to let you know that the Christian faith hinges on this message, this reality right here, the resurrection of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes this letter to this church in Corinth, and he makes this argument that if Christ didn't rise from the grave, then neither will we. And that's the hope that we have as Christians. It's in the resurrection. But Paul will argue that if Christ didn't rise, neither will we rise. And if there is no resurrection, then a couple things are also true. That what we're doing this morning, Doxa, is meaningless. The resurrection is not true. This makes no sense. 
If the resurrection is not true, we are still without hope. And if the resurrection is not true, we are still dead in our sin. And if the resurrection is not true, then as Christians, we, above all people, Paul would say, should be pitied. We'd be wasting our time. But we know, as a people who no one has been impacted by Jesus. We know through the word that is true in the scriptures, we get to be on this side of history and look back and see that the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ is risen. Amen? So the disciples had an opportunity to feel joy hearing about the resurrection, but they could only feel the angst about Jesus' death. But I think we can better understand, right, like this, this reaction by the disciples in light of what it really means to follow Jesus. Like Jesus is the disciples' teacher, and the goal of discipleship is to become like your teacher. And if their teacher's fate, look back at verse 31 again, was to be delivered into the hands of men and to be killed, then on their minds they're probably thinking, Yo, then, then what does this mean for me? What does it mean for me? I think that's a great question, and we're going to be asking ourselves that same question this morning. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And so for the rest of this chapter and even into most of chapter 10, Jesus will be giving his disciples a lesson on the meaning of discipleship. He's going to teach them a few things. I have three here for us, and the first lesson he's going to teach them starts in verse 33. And for all my note takers, here it is. Being a disciple means to serve. Look at verse 33, and they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. Last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. If you guys have been coming here to Doxa during this, this sermon series, and two weeks ago, if you were here, you, we, we recounted the story where Jesus is asking his disciples about who people say that he is. I want to start here before we get into this message. See, they have been traveling, and Jesus has been performing miracles, and they've been in and among crowds, and Jesus wants to know, he's asking the disciples, who are these people saying that I am? Who, who am I known as among the crowds? And the disciples started tossing out names. He says, man, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist, and they started naming other prophets. Some say you're some of the other prophets. Do you remember this? And then he asked them, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter raises his hand quicker than a third grade teacher's pet. <laughs> he says, you are the Messiah. And I love this about Peter, right? Peter is often quick to speak. He's matter of fact. He's out of pocket a lot of times. But here he got it right, didn't he? He would get rebuked a few verses later, because he wouldn't quite know what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah. But at least what he said was correct. 
And here's what I want us to know this morning. Like if, 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 if you proclaim Jesus, who you say Jesus is, is the most important thing about you. But as we get into this text, we'll see that even though it's the most important thing about you, it's not the only important thing about you. Like your proclamation of faith is very important. Don't get me wrong. But the entirety of scriptures points to this reality that your faith in Jesus is not only based on proclamation, but also based on demonstration. It's important who you say Jesus is. But it's also important that who you say Jesus is impacts your life. This is what a life of discipleship means. See, being a disciple means being a learner. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, you'll learn what it means to be like him. And Jesus is saying here that to be like him primarily means to be a servant of all. And yet when we enter the text, here we are with the disciples who are following Jesus, talking about being the greatest. Now, to be fair, right, Jesus isn't really knocking on being great as a whole. See, we can read this text and we can think that Jesus is against greatness or even that he's against excellence, which if we just thought about it for just one second, it doesn't really add up because we're talking about a God who was the creator of the universe, who thought of everything in all of existence that ever existed, everything micro, from the smallest particle of dust here and everything macro to the largest galaxies in the cosmos. And he did it in a way that supports you and I and allows us to have breath even here on this little planet called Earth. See, God is a great God. And God is a perfect God. And so he's not coming against greatness as we experience it. But here's what he's doing. He's redefining what greatness means. It's not a knock on greatness, it's a knock on pride. See, Jesus had no problem with people being great. He had a problem with people dealing with the comparison and pride. C.S. Lewis, a Christian author, he had this quote from his book, Mere Christianity, if you're a fan. He says this, that pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. He says, it is the comparison that makes you proud. It's the pleasure of being above the rest. And once the element of competition is gone, so too is pride gone. And it's that element of competition driven by pride that Jesus was trying to get at. Look back at verse 35. It says, and he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, underline that, and a servant of all. Underline that one too. See, in God's economy, he redefines greatness. And to be great means to be last of all and servant of all. Let me ask us a question. What do you think Jesus meant by of all? It's not a trick question. He meant everyone, right? I look at this. He, he goes to the crowd after he says this, and he picks up a baby in the crowd. And, like, my mind, like, I, 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 I think of Jesus seeing this little baby, right? He, like, debos this new mom for her baby, <laughs> and, and, and he has this baby in her hands. He's like, look, here it is right here. 
And he's saying, listen, being great means to be last and a servant of all, even of people like this. See, I know some of us in here recently had babies or about to have babies. I myself have four of them. Uh, my youngest is two. He's about to exile if he's terrible twos, praise God. <laughs> but what we quickly realize about babies, once we get over their cuteness, and there's a lot of cuteness, is how needy they are, independent they are. And what Jesus is concerned with is how you receive people like that. People who can't do anything for you or do anything about the things that you do for them. People who you would love a simple thank you from, right, teenagers? And yet you'll never receive it. People who cannot and will not return a favor. He says, if you want to be great, get behind them. Receive them and serve them. You see this text. <laughs> By the way, I'm not plugging serving in children's ministry right now. But if you so do choose to sign up, Lisa would be grateful for that. But this text right, puts us in mind of thinking about children. But we can also think about some of the marginalized and outcast and even hurting people among us. Like people who have been pushed to the side and neglected in society, even here in Madison. Like I think about the homeless in our city, and I know for a fact that we have people in here today who care and serve for this population, laying their life down by giving of their time, talents, and treasures to see a people restored, and even though it's often like fighting a losing battle. You see, Jesus sees that and he's like, yes, that's what it means to be great. It's like that. That's what it means to follow me. And he tells us the why. And ironically, it's not for their sake. And of course, it's not for your sake. <laughs> but it's for the sake of Jesus. Like you would think that he would say this thing for us so that we can have some kind of glory and understand that, yo, we're doing the right thing. We're serving that, that, that we can have a metric to understand by which we are actually doing the right thing. But he says, no, that's not it. It's not even for you and it's not even for them. No, it's for me. He says in the text that whoever receives, whoever gets behind, whoever serves a person like this has received, gotten behind, and served me. Y'all, your service to others, the call to do so, is an act of worship that says you've served God. To be a disciple of Jesus means to serve, and second, being a disciple means to be a team player. Look at verse 38. See, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon afterward able to speak evil of me. For the one who was not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Okay, so what's going on here? Like John pipes up in this scenario, and I love that we get this account of John having this interaction with Jesus because throughout the Gospels, like, we don't really ever get to hear John speak in this regard. 
But here we do. And what John wants us to know is that he's letting us in on something that's not recorded in Scripture, but something that he and the other disciples experienced. Namely, some dude that was outside of the tribe of the twelve, they saw him casting out demons. Now it seems like he might be making this known because he's concerned about Jesus or that he's concerned about the name of Jesus. But the rest of this passage likely lends us to something else, which is this. He wasn't so much concerned about Jesus, but rather he was concerned about himself. Do you remember last week when Rob was talking about this story when there was a boy who had the demon? Peter, James, and John had just been on the mountain, and they saw this transfiguration. They came down and joined the other nine, and this crowd was around them, and these folks were with these other disciples, and these people came, and they had this little boy with them. He had this demon, and they were trying to cast him out, and guess what? They couldn't do it. And they were alarmed. (laughs) And when they asked Jesus why, here's what he said. The demon could only be casted out by prayer. Now, how many of you here like to be told that the reason why you're not experiencing the goodness and the power, the wonder in the works of God because you're not praying enough? When Jesus said this, it probably wounded John. So when John mentions this stray exorcist casting out demons in his attempt to stop him, he might have had some ulterior motive in mind. Like maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was afraid that, that, that Jesus was growing discontent with his own disciples and that if he knew or saw about this other dude who was actually doing the good work of God, he could see the power of himself working through them, then maybe he would get rid of us. Maybe he would look for people to replace us. Or maybe he thought that this dude would start gathering more and bigger crowds than he and the 12 had been gathering, and they wouldn't be the talk of the town anymore. See, John was thinking about rank. He was still thinking about who's the greatest. When another name came in town preaching Jesus and seeing successful ministry, his first thought wasn't friend. It was foe. And isn't it true that we can be just like this? See, we're more eager to look for reasons why we should leave or disfellowship with other believers more than reasons why we should unite with them. Like, we're not really going to fight. We don't really have that spirit of John in the, in the tub at the time. Like, they were really, like, they were with it. They were about it, right? They were, about to, they were ready to fight. Like, we're not really that kind of people, right? Our generation's a little bit different. But we don't have to fight. We don't have to come for your head if we can come for your name. We don't have to fight if we can come for your reputation, right? We say things like, man, they've gone too liberal or they've gone too conservative. Can you believe what they said about this? Or can you believe what they said about that? And we get so worked up that we start doubting the sincerity of people's faith, not based on their proclamation and their demonstration, but based on their cultural and preferences. And what we're basically saying is they're not with us, so they can't be about Jesus. And what Jesus says is keep the main thing, the main thing. (laughs) 
He says, answer this question. Do they believe in me? Look at verse 39. Jesus told John, no, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. See, Jesus is saying not only are they for me, or not only are they for me, but they are actually helpful for you. For the one who is not against us is for us. Those who are doing great things and the Spirit is moving through them and their ministry and people are being saved and people are coming to Christ, even if they're not in your camp, Jesus says he approves. And if they're good enough for Jesus, who are we to say different? See, being a disciple of Jesus means being a servant. And being a disciple of Jesus means being a team player. And lastly, here's my third one. Being a disciple of Jesus means being responsible for our sin. Let's look at verse 42. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I should have gave us a caveat before I started reading this part. My bad. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die in the fire is not quenched. All right, how many of you guys signed up to come to church this morning so you could hear me read that passage right there? Right, not me. Like, this sounds fun, right? <laughs> like, I read this text, and I, and I feel like it reads kind of like one of those mafia movies, right? Like, with the whole getting tossed in, like cement blocks on your feet, right? Get tossed into the river, you know, like, like but this is Jesus speaking here. But just to take the edge off for a moment, let me tell us this, okay? We're not supposed to take this portion literally. What we need to know from this, though, is that Jesus is very serious about sin. The sins that we commit and the sins that others commit because we've led them to or allowed them to. See, when he talks about the little ones in this passage, it can be taken to mean like a new or immature believer in the faith, but it could also mean any and every Christian among us. And what Jesus is saying is that if we are comfortable in making a practice out of causing other believers in our midst to sin, or if we are habitually and continually sinning ourselves and we aren't radically dealing with it, then it is as if we have rejected God and the result would be eternal judgment. See, in my recount, I left out the part about the cutting off the hands and the feet. <laughs> but it still hits just the same, doesn't it? Like that's a strong word from the king. 
a wrong way to take this text would be that when you sin, to cut off the, party, the body part that you've sinned with. But if you look back throughout the history of Christianity in some segments of the faith, like people took this actually seriously. Like we even have an old church father in the faith named Origen who, like when he read this, he took this seriously. And in the worst way possible, like, like he struggled with sexual immorality. He struggled with lust. And when he read this, he took that to mean like, yo, I, I guess if I can't stop, I got to do away with it, right? And he literally castrates himself. Fellas, don't do that. There are other ways, trust me. Right? Jesus isn't saying mutilate your body. He's saying be mindful of your actions. See, verses 42 through 47 are a compound argument that builds on what happens in verses 38 and 41. And when the disciples saw this person doing things in the name of Jesus, this stray exorcist, but wasn't literally following Jesus, they wanted to stop him. And whatever they had in mind when they were telling Jesus this, Jesus was willing to call that sin. And as he does, he appeals to their body parts that work together to give in to the temptation to sin. Their eyes that resemble getting lured into action. Their feet that resemble moving toward the action. And their hands that resemble committing to the action. You see, Jesus is saying he's serious about sin. And we have to know that the things in our lives, the things that cause us to sin, or the things in our lives that cause others to sin, those have to be cut out. Y'all, it does us no good to think about the sin in our lives and think that we can have it caged, boxed in right next to us and say, man, I got it under control. I got it under control over here. No, listen, your sin will devour you. It has to be radically dealt with. And this isn't the most mafia thing that Jesus can say. It's actually the most loving thing that he could say. It's better to enter heaven with a limp and spend eternity with Jesus than to sprint your way towards hell to spend eternity without him. See, Christians, you're not called to cut your body, <laughs> but you are called to wage war on your sin. Being mindful of what catches your eye and where your feet take you and what your hands commit so that you don't fall into sin or cause others to sin or stumble or fall away from Jesus. Why? Because we will be responsible for that. Like, yes, Jesus died for our sin, and we can praise God for that, but there's also other parts of the Scripture that are true, like Hebrews 10 that also tells us this in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. In 1 John 3, 6, John says this, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Speaking of Jesus. But y'all, the point of these verses are not to make us fearful of losing our salvation or to cause us to question whether or not we had ever been saved before. Yes, I know, sin is prevalent. But if you are Christ's, 
you will be radically putting sin to death. And these scriptures are here to help us, to correct us, and motivate us to obey God's command to love and to serve. See, Jesus is saying, be mindful. Don't corrupt the people around you. Serve the people around you. And this is essentially what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It means radically being a servant of others. Like being a disciple is about being a learner. And the thing that Jesus teaches us is how to lay our lives down for others in the glory of God. To offer yourself to, to be inconveniently mindful of, and to lay it down for the people around us. This is what it means to be a disciple. There's a little bit of text left in Mark 9. We've got to get to this too. So look at verse 39 with me. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. See, when I was doing my study for this text, um, scholars are in agreement that this is one of the hardest passages to translate and interpret, right? Like they were saying, there's at least 12 ways that you can look at this text. And so I, I tried to go with the best one for us to present to you today. But in verse 49, where it talks about, for everyone will be salted with fire. Like I think it would be wise if we think about what used to happen in the Old Testament the people of Israel, they were required to have sacrifices that were devoted to God as an, as an act of their worship. And what they would do is they would have animals and they would put them on the altar. Or they would have grain and they would put them on the altar. And what they would do is salt their sacrifices with salt. And salt was this preservative. And it would preserve the sacrifice on the altar. And when it went in flames, it wouldn't burn up right away, but it would produce this pleasing aroma to the Lord. See, in the Old Testament, the sacrifice was grains and other produce and animals. But in the New Testament, it's no longer that. Paul helps us out in his letter to the Romans in chapter 12. He says this in verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, in the old covenant, it was with animals and grain. This is what got put on the altar. But here, Jesus and Paul are in agreement when it says in the new covenant, it's no longer grain and animals, but it's you. And Jesus says, have salt in yourselves. Be set apart, preserve, be set apart from the world so that whenever you do act, it is a pleasing sacrifice to me. Your life lived, devoted to serve others is a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. See, a life of discipleship is marked by sacrificial service before God and man. And it's only by this life of sacrifice that we will be able to serve others and see ourselves as last. 
to fight exclusivity and die to the world of comparison and properly take responsibility for our sin. So maybe you're here this morning, you stepped into Doxa, you got invited by a friend, (laughs) and this is the first message that you hear. Or maybe you're new to the faith, you haven't quite given your life to Christ yet, and you're feeling like, man, I feel a weight on my back talking about discipleship. I feel this weight. And here's the reality. If, if you're feeling this weight, that is the right weight to feel. See, Jesus does offer himself freely to those who would follow him. But there is also a price tag. And that price tag is your life. See, Jesus is continually talking about what it will take to follow him. And in Luke's account of the gospel in chapter 14, 25 through 35, he's standing in front of this crowd and he says this to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and do what? Count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. See, Jesus is speaking in a little bit more hyperbole here in the first part of this text. And he's not saying, you like you literally have to hate your mother or father or wife or husband or children, right? That would actually go against some other parts that are commanded in the scripture. But he is saying, that he has to be the first love, above all, the greatest love that you have in your life has to go there. And if that's not true in our lives, and we can take inventory and see, we can test our relationships, we can look at our bank account, we can look at our hobbies, we can look at our calendar, and we can see who's first in my life. Who do I love most? See, Jesus has an opportunity in front of this big crowd to tell a group of people to follow him. He could have said what he said in another text, right? All of you who are burdened, labored, and weary, yo, come to me, take on my yoke, and I will give you rest. He could have said that, and I'm sure he could have got a a multitude of people following him, but he doesn't do that in this text. He does something different. Instead, he proceeds to talk about the cost of following him. And he asks for nothing less than their lives. Believers in the room, before you decided to follow Jesus, did you consider what it would cost? See, those of us who know Following Jesus will cost us more than we could ever know, but will give more than we can ever imagine. Do you believe that? See, the path to follow Jesus, it isn't complicated, but it is costly, but the cost is worth it. See, the great news about the gospel is not that we get our best life now, but that we get eternity with Jesus. And that alone is worthy of following the command. So I'm about to close, but before I do, 
have a few things for us. I want to ask us this question. What do we do (laughs) with a message like this? The first thing is this. We pray. If we want to be disciples of Jesus and we want to follow in his ways, we cannot do it alone. We need to be connected to the source. We have to be connected to Jesus. And prayer is the lifeline for the Christian that connects us and gives us direct access to Jesus. That gives us direct access to the Father. That gives us direct access to the Spirit that fills us with the ability to choose in our lives the cost of discipleship, to lay it down, to serve. But we have to pray. We need to ask for it. We need to recognize our dependence on God. And prayer is how we depend on him. Secondly, we need to rest in humility. We have to know that we don't have to boast in our greatness, in our pride. In a place like America, in a world like today, when it's get what you can get and get it while the sun's up and don't stop until you have all that you want. This is a hard message. But the gospel gives us a new motivation. We don't have to accumulate things. We don't have to seek the American dream. We don't have to own that business. We don't have to have the popping podcast. We don't have to do that to feel great. We have to rest in humility. We have to know that we serve a God who embraced his humility, who embodied the ultimate form of service to lay his life down even to the point of death. Y'all, if we are disciples of Jesus, it means that we will be servants like that, living a life of sacrifice, offering ourselves to, inconveniently being mindful of, and laying our lives down for the glory of God and the people around us. And lastly, we have to count the cost. Listen, if you're not a believer in this room this morning, I want nothing more than for you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus wants nothing more than for you to come into a saving knowledge of who he is so that you can have eternal life, so that you can loosen your grip on the things of this world that look like prizes and gifts and gold and glory to you. But at the end of the days, it will fail. It will fade. We have to count the cost. So how do you count the cost? You have to take an honest look at Jesus. Read your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles out at Info Central. Take that home with you. Read it. Understand what it says about Jesus. Don't take it from my word. Don't take it from the people around you's word. Look at it for yourself. Know what it says, read the word of God and ask the hard questions. Y'all, if you want to count the cost, we have to ask the hard questions. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to you? Secondly, 
spend time around more Christians. <laughs> I know we can be crazy sometimes. <laughs> but I know you can find something you like even here at Doxa. And thirdly, take inventory of your life. Like this is how you count the cost. Are the things you're holding on to worth more than the immeasurable love of God? Is it worth more? Is the higher pay raise, is the longer vacation, is the more vacations, is the over-preparing for retirement? Are the sports programs for your children? The things that we live our lives for and sacrifice for, are they worth more than the immeasurable love of God? Take inventory. Read your Bible. Spend more time with Christians. Take inventory. This is how you count the cost. And like anything, when you count the cost, you also have to count the value. And here's the promise. The value in what you get for committing to Jesus and following him is invaluable. It's priceless. Let me pray that we receive that. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for you. Father, we're grateful for your son. Mama, I thank you for sending him to be our example, to be our model, to be our substitute, to be the sacrifice for us. Listen, the call on our lives, we know, Father, are not to die for anybody. But the call is to die to ourselves. Father, you tell us in our word that if we want to see the glory and be raised with Christ, that we also have to see his humility and die with Christ. Lord, would you work it in us to desire that, to desire wanting to be a disciple. Desire us to want to lay down our lives. Would you work the desire in us to be inconveniently mindful of the people around us, to serve and to lay it all down, not only for our sake, not only for their sake, but primarily for your sake, Lord. Would our service be a sacrifice, honorable, and pleasant to you, Lord. Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.